unjust, to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, that is our hope this day. And we thank you that in this moment, you are here. And your word brings us life. Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts again today. Quicken our minds. Give us ears to hear what you are saying to us and to our church. And all God's people said, amen. So good morning. My name is Suzanne Vogel. I'm the lead pastor here for Meredith Drive Reformed Church, and I sound worse than I feel. So for any of you nurses or, you know, people who are compassionate and who are worried about me right now, I'm actually hanging in. But you can pray that, you know, my voice lasts because uh, it's it's been a thing. If you're here this morning for the first time, we are in a series we're calling Beautiful. And it's a series on Lent where we're reflecting on how God takes brokenness and creates beauty. And if you have your Bible, I would invite you, we're using the book of Luke, I'd invite you to turn to Luke 9, 37 through 43. And before we read this, I just am going to own, I did not like this passage coming in. Uh, There are times uh, when... I love the passage I get to preach right out of the gate, right? I can see it. I can hear how it's going to work. And then there are times I feel a little bit like, do any of you watch games on TV and you end up yelling at the screen because you're into it and you're passionate and you're, you know, um, I feel like this week I ended up yelling at my Bible, um, and yelling at Jesus a little bit because I kept wrestling with What was beautiful about this passage? And so I'm going to invite you into my crazy this week and into my shouting match with Jesus uh, as we read. So I invite you to start with me on verse 37. The next day when they, and they here means Jesus and three of his disciples, came down from the mountain, a large crowd met them. Now, a man in the crowd cried out or called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and it is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. This is the word of the Lord. So in this passage, it starts in a way that I would consider relatively normal. Now that's a, that's already convoluted because if you are new to Jesus and maybe you don't know anything about the Bible, 
it ought to surprise us that anybody comes to a mortal, a human being, and says, heal my son. But for those of us who've walked with Jesus, who've read this story, we understand that everywhere Jesus goes, he brings life. And he brings healing and he brings justice. And so it ought not surprise us that a man in the crowd, a father in the crowd, cries out to Jesus as he approaches. Now this father, it actually the language of the original story is very strong. This isn't a father saying, hey, uh, sir, if I could just have a moment of your time. This father cries out and screams to Jesus and says, Jesus, would you look with compassion on my child? He is my only child. He is my future. He is my hope. He is my beloved. He is the answer to prayers. That's what an only child would have been in this culture. And so he cries out to Jesus. And the language he uses to describe what's happening to his son is actually really vivid and very violent. His son is being ravaged. He's being, um, in fact, the word is he's being crushed and destroyed by what we would probably today call epilepsy. But he begs Jesus, do something about this. Now, like I said, at this point, the story feels normal to me. But this is the moment where it starts to take a hard left into uh, crazy town for me. Because the last sentence this father says is, I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Now, I'm reading this in my office, and my first thought was, whoa, hang on. Those are some pretty high expectations of the people who follow Jesus. Hello? I don't think that's appropriate to ask of the disciples of Jesus. And not to mention he threw them under the bus a little bit. But it's striking to me when I read it. The father approached the disciples with the expectation that they could do what Jesus did. And some part of me internally was like, that's not fair. That's a little too much to expect of the disciples of Jesus. Only, here's the trouble, I think it still happens. I think the world around us still looks at the people of Jesus and says, hey, there are horrible things happening. Are you going to show up the way Jesus did? I think the world looked at the church two days ago when a terrorist opened gunfire on two mosques and looks at us and says, where are you at, church? You going to do anything about this? And to be really candid, if they don't do that, we're in bigger trouble because it means they've quit expecting that the church would do anything, right? But even in that moment, when I feel the weight of that, I want to do what I did that day in my office and say, whoa, 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 I'm not Jesus. That is too much to ask. Only the trouble is, is that Jesus appears to agree with the Father. 
And I, again, found myself saying, hold up. See, Jesus doesn't come to their rescue and say to the father, hey, now, no, you got to understand. Me, I'm human and God. You can ask that of me, but you leave my disciples out of this. He doesn't do that, does he? He actually seems to agree with the father that the disciples should have been able to do something. And when I sat back and thought about it, I remembered that actually this very chapter in Luke begins with Jesus calling the 12 disciples together, giving them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure all diseases. And then he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Snap. Shoot. We are on the hook. They were on the hook. Jesus had said, hey, guys, here's the deal. I'm going to give you power and I'm going to give you authority and you're going to go out and people are going to actually expect you to be my hands and feet, to bring the kingdom, to challenge evil, to bring healing to the community around you. And in fact, it says they had started doing it. The father came to them because he'd heard where the people of Jesus were, things were happening. (sighs) Okay, fine, 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 Jesus. We're on the hook. It's fair that people expect us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, but the trouble is that I expected Jesus to maybe defend us a little bit or defend them, but Not only does he agree with the father, he's frustrated with them. He's frustrated with them. Now, again, here my impulse was to be defensive for the disciples. Because I read, you unbelieving and perverse generation, and I think like most of us, my response was, Jesus, take a chill Somebody needs a nap. I mean, that honestly, Johnny and I were having this conversation over Skype. It was hilarious. Uh, But I was like, man, Jesus is being way overreactive in this moment, in my humble opinion. And then I started to slow down and ask, okay, why is Jesus frustrated? Do you find yourselves asking these questions of the scriptures? Yeah, So I tried to slow down and say, okay, now why is Jesus mad? And I realized my assumption out of the gate was that Jesus was angry because they couldn't do it. My assumption was that Jesus was angry because he had given them power, given them authority. They had screwed it up, proven themselves inept, and he was mad because they didn't get it right. And... Then I slept sitting with that and thinking, does that sound like the Jesus I know? Does that fit with the Jesus even we're introduced to in this context? And what I slowed down and I went back into chapter 9 and realized that just moments earlier in the text... The disciples are on a hillside with Jesus and 5,000 people. Some of you will remember this story. If you have your Bible, you can open back up to it, right? There's 5,000 people and Jesus 
looks at the disciples and says, you feed them. And that is equally difficult, by the way, to this moment, I think. And they equally can't do it. They go around and they muck around in the crowds and they gather up some, you know, a couple loaves of bread and a few handful of fish and they bring it to Jesus, right? And they're like, we don't know what to do. And the good news is in that place, he's not angry with them. Did you notice that? He's not mad. In fact, he looks at him and says, all right, now we're going. So maybe Jesus isn't angry at them because they don't get it right. Maybe it's something else. And then it hit me. Wait a minute. Where are the disciples? Have you ever, if you've got your Bible, where are they now in this story? Did, did you find them? It was striking to me. Maybe they're embarrassed, right? Maybe they tried and they couldn't make anything better. And so they kind of, you know, do this. Um. <laughs> maybe, maybe they're angry because the father put them on the spot. Maybe they're ashamed uh, because they failed. Maybe they're hiding Maybe they tried, and when they realized it didn't work, they were like, okay, time to go home for a nap. I don't know. I don't know what happened. All I know, all we know from this passage is they're nowhere to be found. They are AWOL at this point. Now, again, right, my defensiveness pulls up in me. Well, of course they're gone, Jesus. What else do you expect them to do, right? They've tried. They've failed. What else would you expect? Well, when I got really honest with myself in this moment, I remembered something that we have tried to teach our kids, something that I have tried to live by. What we have tried to say to our children is that you can screw up, just don't run away. When you fail, take responsibility and get help. See, I think they could have recognized they were in over their heads and went for Jesus, right? I can hear a version of this in my head. You know what, Father? I'm so sorry. I have come to the end of my resources. I can't fix this. But I know someone who can. So just stay here and I'm going to run and find him. Or maybe it would have looked something or sounded something like, you know what, I know I am not enough in this moment. But this breaks my heart. And I'm going to stay here with you until Jesus comes down off that mountain. And then I will be the one who calls for him. Because by the way, he knows me. And he'll listen when I call. But guess what? Who called for Jesus? The Father. Which means that somewhere along the line, the disciples went, 
I'm out. They quit. My grandpa had a uh, saying for this. He had a, it was his polite way of talking about uh, people, well, particularly one of his hired hands. He'd say, that boy has a whole lot of quit in him. (laughs) And in some ways, that's what the disciples do. See, when it wasn't easy, when their resources weren't sufficient, rather than going to the well, going to the God who says, I am with you, they're like, it was too hard. And they disappear. And that's what I think Jesus is saying and what he's referring to when he calls, when he talks about a perverse an unbelieving generation. I don't believe he's calling them that. He's actually referring them to a place in Deuteronomy where God warns the people of God and says, you know what? There's a time coming when you're going to get to the places where I've called you to. And you are going to have resources and you're going to get comfortable. And then there's going to be things that will happen. And instead of turning back to me for help, you will turn to other countries for help. You will turn to other gods for help. You will trust your wealth. You will trust your resources. And instead of that, instead of coming to me. And Jesus, I believe in this moment, is warning his disciples. Of course you can't do it all. Of course you are going to screw up. What frustrates me is that you didn't come back to me. And that, my friends, for a recovering perfectionist and people pleaser, is good news. It's good news. Because here's the thing. Failure is not fatal in this passage. Right? Failure is not fatal. So many of us spend so much of our lives trying to avoid screwing up, trying to keep everybody happy. And in this passage, they screw up. They do. They blow it. They go AWOL. But here's the good news is that's not the end of the story. In fact, my fear often is that if I'm going to, if I screw up or if I get it wrong, right, that God's going to get all frustrated and angry with me. He's going to wash his hands of me. He's going to say, you know what? You're off the team. You're off the team. You've been voted off the island. But this passage reminds us that the disciples screw up. You screw up. I screw up. And actually, in just a couple of verses, they're back out doing ministry again. He sends them again. Because Jesus is a God of grace who keeps looking at us and saying, yeah, I know you're human. I don't expect you to be perfect. Just keep coming back to me. So failure isn't fatal. Friends, that is beautiful. That is good news for those of us who screw up, which is, by the way, all of us. The second thing that's really good news is their failure doesn't stop Jesus from acting. I think another one of my fears sometimes is that if I screw up, it's going to, well, then God won't do what God's going to do. And the beautiful part of this story is that, by the way, this was another aha. 
This story is eight verses. How many of, of them are about Jesus rebuking the disciples? One. One out of eight verses. Right? The whole rest of the story is about Jesus and a father and a child who gets healed. Isn't it like us that we spend all of our energy focusing on the one bad thing? Does anybody else do this? Right? I can, it's just crazy, right? We can do something beautiful and we get one negative comment and it's all about that. But in this particular story, God moves. Not only do the disciples receive some help and instruction and some grace, but God heals the father and has pity on the son. God moves in spite of us. And that, my friends, is good news because if God's waiting for me to get it perfect, we're going to be in trouble. But the last thing that strikes me is that last verse, right? And all were amazed at the greatness of God. All, all, disciples, father, son, the crowds, In the midst of this context where things don't go perfectly and people are broken and messy, all were amazed. Because here's the thing, when we only do what we are capable of doing, if that's all we ever attempt, then where is the glory of God? Part of what it means to live and to follow Jesus into mission is to Follow him into places where we don't have enough, where what we have isn't. And then if we keep seeking him, he shows up. And the greatness of God is made manifest. You know, I think this is really important because the world around us The world around us heaves and aches with brokenness. There are children being crushed around us. And we are being looked to. The people of God, the church of God, the people who follow Jesus. And they're asking us, are you stepping in? Will you engage? Will we be a people who actually take action against racism? Are we people who will feed hungry children? Are we people who will stand against systemic injustice? And the truth is, if you're anything like me, you get an impulse to try. And then it's hard. And in those places, I'm tempted to want to quit. And say, well, I tried. I served meals from the heartland. I did a little this. I did a little that. And then it got hard. And so I went home and took a nap. Instead of standing and continuing in faith. And bringing those situations to the feet of Jesus. If nothing else, in prayer. For example... I can get overwhelmed by what happened in Christchurch. And I could very quickly say, not mine. 
But the minimum I could do would be to go to Jesus and ask him in prayer to move on their behalf, to bring healing. And then I could look for ways that God might show me to participate. Do you see the difference? I can always pray. I can always bring the situation to Jesus. And then I can stay in and not run away. You know, one of, I think, the pictures of this is, a, is actually the patron saint of the holiday we're celebrating today. St. Patrick. Now, just so you know, for those of you who don't know the history of this holiday, I'm not propo- uh, proposing that we celebrate this passage with beer and green clothes. The story of St. Patrick is actually, this was a young man born in Britain who was kidnapped from his home and sold into slavery in Ireland, where he worked for, according to his biography, six or seven years. And it was there that he actually met Jesus. And one night, the Spirit prompted him to try and escape. He ran away, went home, and became a priest. Studied to become a priest. But his heart for the people who enslaved him never left. And so once he became a priest, he returned to the brokenness and evil he had escaped to bring the good news of the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? That's the kind of life and love that I think we are invited into this day. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this opportunity today to be reminded that your heart is to grow us up. That you don't expect us to be perfect. You don't expect us to be, to always get it right. What you long for is that we will keep coming back to you. That we would in our brokenness and sin, not run away and not hide, but bring ourselves and the desperation around us to you, the only one who can make a difference. And so God, this morning, would you give us a deep sense that we are called to respond to the brokenness of the world around us. Show us how to do that out of your strength and out of your power, not out of our own. Because our own power will always be inadequate. God, we love you.